This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. And so for a Jewish believer, to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol would be very upsetting. Now, Corinth, though, is a Greek city, right? So it's largely made up of Greek people with Greek customs who had come to faith. And so for Greeks, food was often dedicated to idols so that these idols would be honored by eating food dedicated to a god. So let's say this food was dedicated to Zeus. You were pleasing Zeus by eating that food. And it was part of their worship life together. Uh, In Corinth, the culture said you really needed to eat food sacrificed to these idols. And so the temptation for Christians, who were Corinthians, was to undervalue the power of the gospel by saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I'm also going to eat the food sacrificed to the idol just so I can cover my bases. Just to make sure (laughs) that I have everything covered, I'm going to go ahead and eat the food. Yes, I love Jesus, but you know what? There's a sense in which these gods, small g, actually have some power, so I'm going to go ahead and eat the food that's dedicated to them. There, the weak person was the one who was eating meat. They're saying, I'm going to eat the meat sacrificed because my understanding of the gospel is not strong enough. I'm weak. Now, it's not because meat was good or bad, but because meat was dedicated to an idol that supposedly had some kind of power. Now, you may remember this uh, about a year ago when we were going through the church, going through Romans, they had a different problem. Because in Rome, it was likely that there were more Jewish people in the community. In Rome, the weak Christians only ate vegetables because they didn't want to be corrupted by the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Right? So in Corinth, the weak ones ate meat. They didn't want to miss out on the power that it had. But in Romans, Paul is writing to this church with Jewish members, and he's saying those who only eat vegetables, which is those who will not eat meat out of concern that it's unclean, are not fully trusting in the gospel. And again, it's not about our diet. Not that we shouldn't have a healthy diet. It's about this idea that somehow, even though I'm in Christ, I need to obey this set or that set of food laws. Now, we have freedom in Christ to make a decision about how we want to eat. We have freedom to do that. Some would say, I want to be vegetarian or I want to be vegan. Others would say, I want to eat meat. That's That's a choice as Christians that we have that we're free to choose. But Paul is getting at this reality that it can cause division within the church. Because sometimes we say, well, just in case, I'm going to do this thing because I want to cover my bases. So the church in Rome was undervaluing the power of the gospel in the same way, but in a different way, I'm sorry. And the presenting issue is this food sacrifice to idols. But just like the lawsuits were a symptom of the problem, so is whether or not a person eats meat. So let's keep going here in verse 3 to get a better understanding of what he's saying. Look, verse 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there uh, is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is saying that there's only one God revealed through the Father and through the Son, Jesus. Everything else is a fraud, right? So the, the gods that the meat has been sacrificed to are not actually God. They're just idols. You don't need to cover your bases by eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And this is going to be challenging for the church in Corinth because this is part of their worship practice, right? Just like temple prostitution was part of their worship practice. Paul is lovingly giving them guidance on how they are to live and to say, you don't need to do that anymore. And what he's getting at in this chapter is, and by doing it, you're feeding into your brothers and sisters who are weaker than you in faith and even causing them to stumble in their faith journey. Because they're going to see you doing it and say, oh, I better do it. Because so-and-so who's farther along in the journey than me is doing it, I better do it. So one of the things that we learn here is that no matter how far along we've come in our faith, there's still potentially a struggle for us to trust in an idol. To say this cultural thing that I've always done, I need to keep doing again because I just want to cover my bases, right? And so we know, though, that, that the idols of that day were made of gold and silver or stone or wood, and that people would literally bow down to them, and they represented some, some ancient god. But today, our idols are not that way. They're not often statues that we bow down to. Uh, in fact, they're often good things that are in the creation that have become bad things because we've made them an ultimate thing. And, you know, one of the easiest ones to think about is just, is just money. Money is a good thing. We can use our resources to, to be generous, to serve others, uh, to care for others, uh, to provide for our families and for the mission that God has. God entrusts resources to us all the time. But there's sometimes when money can become something that we look to for our hope and joy. It's the thing that I need more of so that I can function in the world. Or it's the thing that really gives me the security that I need. As long as the market's doing well, I'm at peace. And when the market isn't doing well, <laughs> I'm not at peace. And we can understand, maybe I'm not fully full bored down in the pursuit of money, but I know that my uh, heart can go up and down just as the market does. And here's, here's a great tip for you if that's you. Just don't look at the market. <laughs> just don't look at it, ever. No, you have to look at it sometimes, but like, if you want your heart to go up and down with the market, then watch the market. See, if I'm looking to this thing to give me significance or security or power or influence, then I'm going to be needing more of it. But in reality, we know that God is our provider, that he's given us every single thing that we need, and honestly, where we live, he's given us more as compared to the overwhelming majority of the people on the earth. God has provided for us in every way, and he will continue to, to provide for us. That doesn't mean that things don't get tight and that we don't want to make wise investments and use our money and to invest it in the proper way. But we're never going to get ultimate security from the market because what if it crashes? What if it goes up? What if it goes down? There's this tendency for us to look at money for comfort or control or status instead of fully looking to Jesus. So 
Sometimes money can serve as food sacrifice to idols. Yes, I know I love Jesus, but if I've got a lot of money, I'm going to be fine. Instead of saying, if I've got Jesus, I'm going to be fine. My money may go up and down, but if I've got Jesus, I am going to be fine. In fact, I'm going to flourish because I'm not worried about the market. It's going to go up and down. So that's one of those things that we can put our hope and joy in. But there's another, a lot of other things, a million other things we can put our hope and joy in. What about my children? What about my occupation? What about my reputation? Uh, there's a, a helping idolatry. What's that? Well, my life only has meaning. My life only has worth if people are dependent upon me, if people need me, right? Codependency. Right? This is a problem uh, with with people who struggle with addiction and the people who are in relationship with them. We have a group, a great group that meets in here every Monday to talk about how do you relate with a person who's experiencing addiction because there's a tendency for other people to want to rescue them and to care for them and they feel the need to be needed by them and it creates a a dynamic, difficult, uh, cyclical um, pattern that's bad for both people. Do you have a helping idolatry where you've got to be the one that rescues? I'm the one they need to call. I take every call. I try to solve every problem for my kids or for the people who are around me. What about family idolatry? My life only has meaning and significance if my children and or my parents are happy or happy with me. If my kids are doing well, then everything's fine. So I'm going to do every single thing I can to make sure they're doing well, right? I'm going to protect them and care for them so that they don't experience any harm or any hurt in the world. And so we're just going to get down right here and just take care of each other like this, right? You know, it used to be helicopter parents. They hover around and solve the problems and bring the lunch and do the homework. But now it's snowplow parents, they just push everything out of the way to make sure that little Johnny gets the best you know, trophy or score or whatever. Instead of allowing your children to struggle and, be, and experience difficulty. But if I'm only looking to my children's approval, then I'll do whatever they want. Or with my parents. If I'm only willing to, if I want my parents' approval, I'll do whatever they want me to do. Achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my career. Are the people around, those who need to be noticing, are they noticing? Am I getting affirmation? Am I getting encouragement, right? When you think about like award ceremonies, if you've gone to a a graduation, there's all these awards that go out. And so people can say, well, I'm number one in the class or I was the, you know, this or that. Like, is there an award for the most humble person? The hard part is if you get the medal for being most humble, you can't even wear it, right? However, you just go, I got this. I'm putting it down here. But are we, are we celebrating in achievements of people who are deeply walking in faith, right? Work idolatry. This is a, a challenging one for us. Um, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm getting a lot done. I've got a list, and I'm getting it done. Meanwhile, the list that we have is worthless. It's just a bunch of activity and stuff is on your list, is on your to-do list. Experience the love and blessing of Jesus today. Is that on your list? If it's not, it needs to be on. Put it on the top of your list. Experiencing the favor and the blessing and the presence of God today. That's what should be on your list. I'm just making a recommendation. You don't have to do it. But I would suggest that if you do that, that's 
on the list or at the top, experiencing the goodness of God and remembering his great and infinite love for me today. If that is on your list, then the rest of the list, if it gets done or not, it's not as important. A good way of determining what your idol is is what is it that makes you really mad? Now, we should have a righteous anger at injustice that exists in the world. That is good and right. Jesus was angry when the poor people were not permitted to come and make a sacrifice. That's why he flipped at the tables. There is a righteous anger. I'll confess to you, most of my anger is not a righteous anger. It's an irritation. And we, use word, we're not, we don't say, I'm angry. We say, I'm irritated. I'm frustrated. That's just a way to minimize the real discontent and aggravation that I have because somebody didn't do what I wanted them to do for me. If you just say, oh, I'm just frustrated. Is it because someone's experiencing injustice? Or is it because you're not getting what you want? Is it because I'm not getting what I want? People should know that I'm driving and they should all pull over to the side. I don't need to have a siren or a flashing light. They should know that I'm coming. They should repair all these roads for me so that I can drive a smooth way and not have uh, strut damage on my car. But what is it that's bothering you? What is it that's frustrating you? And ask yourself, is it because you're not getting what you want? The, the great thing about this is that these reveal to us those idols in our life. And another one is, you know, how about your life as a whole? Are you happy with how your life turned out? Or are you mad? You know, I wanted this, I worked for this, and I did all these things, and this is the way, and God, you know, we had a deal. I was going to obey you. I was going to do everything you wanted me to do, and this is what happened, and so this isn't fair. This isn't right. Well, that's an indication that I have put something else ahead of God. God doesn't know, owe me anything, but he's already given me everything. And if I'm frustrated with how things did or didn't turn out, it's possible that I was putting my hope in something else. So Paul is getting at this idolatry that we can have. that We, we bow down to these idols. We, we essentially eat the food that's sacrificed to an idol. So we're covering our bases. And what Paul is saying is that you who are more mature in faith, you who know better, don't feed into that with people that you're around. This last section here, he says this, Verse 7, however, not all possess knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food readily offered to an idol, and their conscience, the conscience of the weak person, is defiled. And he says, food will not commend us to God. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Right? Don't let what you're doing become a stumbling block to somebody who's not as far on in the journey as you are. And like I said at the beginning, some of us are farther along in, in some ways than in others, but we're all on the journey together. Three times in this section, Paul uses the word for conscience. And that means to know with. It's this internal court where our actions are judged and are either approved or condemned. It's not the law of God, but it bears witness to the moral law as long as we have knowledge about it, right? It's not let your conscience be your guide, which is Jiminy Cricket theology. It's just, hey, whatever your heart thinks, but it's having some knowledge, sopho, but not being the moro, <laughs> right? Applying the wisdom of God in a way that is faithful to God. See, 
If you're a new believer, your conscience is weaker because you've only known the Lord for a short time. Others do not have a strong conscience because they've not grown and matured as believers. But Paul is saying that the conscience of a weak Christian, he says this, it's easily defiled, verse 7, it's easily wounded, in verse 12, it's easily offended, in verse 13. If you find yourself to be offended, often it's possible that you don't have a strong conscience yet. Are you wounded by the things that people say? These are hard questions for us. These are assessments that we can do about our own story and journey. Am I irritated with little things often? Do I think that people should treat me better than they do? Am I not getting what I deserve? If we're asking that question, we have to understand, what do you deserve? What does everybody person who's a sinner deserve? Death. But what do we get through Christ? Life. When we understand that, then what we get doesn't matter because we've already been given the most wonderful and glorious thing. And so then what we do as people who are on the way maturing is that we encourage our brothers and sisters who haven't made that understanding yet. They haven't gotten to that point yet. We don't berate them and to say, what's the matter with you? How can you not know this? Your life should be different than it is. You're not behaving in the right way. No, we point them to Jesus. And we say, I have been given this new life in Christ. I've been given salvation and joy. And so what people say or money or the things of this world are mattering to me less and less. Although I still struggle with it, they're mattering less and less. And so I want to encourage you And Paul says that it's not the food that matters, but I don't want to be a stumbling block to someone. What's a stumbling block? Something that that causes someone else to trip up in their their journey. It holds them back from maturing. right? So Paul is saying, you're free to eat any food you want, but don't be a stumbling block. So here's the thing. You're free as a Christian to drink alcohol at the proper age if that's what you desire. That's a freedom that I believe that we have. But you also have to measure the risks of alcohol for your health and for your competency on the road, right? Those are wise things to do. However, if you're in relationship with people who struggle with alcohol, is it a good thing for you to say, hey, here's a bunch of wine and alcohol, come over to your house and have a party? No, it isn't. Because that's a stumbling block for the person who has struggled with addiction. We want to be sensitive to that person. So we want to glorify that kind of action in their presence. Because it's a struggle. They're weak in that area. For whatever reason. So we don't want to put it in their face and to say, hey, this is what you should do. Here's the thing. As a Christian, you're free to consume entertainment. You're free to consume literature and art. But we know that not everything that's called art reflects the glory and the goodness of God. It's not edifying to us. But depending on where you are in your journey, you want to be careful with those who are at different places, right? So one person uh, can say, I'm choosing to watch these films that are dark because I have a biblical worldview and I'm understanding the depth of depravity through this film in light of the gospel. And I know that the only hope for the characters in that story and the producers and the writers and directors and actors is if they have Jesus. And so that dark film gives me an opportunity to see where the culture is. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to get up here on Sunday morning and use um, 
Game of Thrones sermon illustrations. I haven't watched the show, by the way. Because I've made the decision for me that it's not an edifying thing, not a show that I want to watch. I like Ice Road Truckers, okay? But so we have to use wisdom in how we talk about art and culture depending on the people that we're around. Because our goal is not to pamper people or to just go, well, you can't handle this, but it's to say, is this appropriate for you at this time? You're free to watch whatever news station you want to watch. You're free to consume any kind of news and information you want from the internet, from your phone. But you've got to think through, are the people that you're listening to coming from a biblical perspective? Are they seeking to honor Jesus with their words? And if they aren't, then you've got to be able to interpret what they're saying in light of Scripture. Because if you're watching news, cable news, whether you're watching Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow, you've got to be interpreting what they say with the Bible. And if you're listening to hours and hours and hours of their content, you're going to be influenced by it, and you may not know what's true. And when you talk about what they talk about, you're influencing people that are around you to follow those people, whoever they may be. And so if you're spending time in the Word reflecting on the glory and goodness of God, and you're able to say, well, that part is consistent with a biblical worldview, and that part isn't. And I can make that determination. And so when I talk about this, I'm able to say, hey, look, I can agree and disagree, then fine. But if you're just saying, hey, I just watch this network all the time, and you're telling everybody, people who are weaker in faith, then you're doing them a disservice. We do them a disservice. And here's a question. Does watching whatever news channel you're watching, or whatever newspaper, or whatever Twitter feed, or whatever, is it making you more like Jesus? Is it making you more at peace with the world? Do you have a greater sense of love and charity and kindness? Are you looking more to undo the injustices of the world? If it's leading you to that, then fantastic. But if it's making you scared or anxious or bitter or angry, turn it off. Just turn it off. Thousands of years of people went by without cable news networks, and they all survived. You don't need it. I'm not saying don't pay attention to what's going on but you don't need as much of you as you do. So here's the thing. Paul is saying, let's love each other and understand where we are. So part of this is, am I mature in faith? Am I growing? Am I acting with wisdom? But the other part of it is, am I loving those around me enough to say, it's not a good idea for me to discuss this film, this book, this news story with this person because I don't want them to fall away from Jesus. And the other thing that it does is it makes us ask ourselves the question, is there anyone in my community that I'm not reconciled with? Have I pointed someone in the wrong direction? Have I caused someone to, to uh, lack faith? Have I diminished their view of Jesus or the church because I've complained about it or I've been angered or bitter or anxious because of what I've consumed? And so it's just a great opportunity because remember what Paul is saying all through this whole section is that what does it mean to be the church together? And here's the deal. So like you probably have seen these videos online and I've been trashing watching TV and videos online. I'm going to refer to another meme thing going on. But it's, I've seen this a bunch where a student who has a, some kind of developmental disability, maybe Down syndrome or a physical disability or something like is the manager of a team. And because that team loves that uh, student so much, they, uh, they set up a play on the field 
and they communicate with the other team. I've seen this with football. I've seen this with basketball. But everybody just kind of stops, and the person who in a million years would never score a touchdown gets the ball and starts running. And you know, they're usually not running fast. They're carrying the ball you know, like this. Everybody knows you don't carry it like this. You've got to tuck it right here like this. They're doing it this way, and they're running, and the other team just kind of lets them go through, and everybody on the whole team, and both sides of both stadiums, the fans are all cheering and cheering and cheering. And everyone's celebrating. Because what they're saying is, the teams are saying is that the score of the game is less important than valuing the person who may be physically weaker. Or for whatever reason is, in this, in this context, mentally weaker. They're saying the relationships and the connection is way more important than whether or not a touchdown was scored. And that to me is just an image of this idea of what it means to be the church. Sometimes we can get really dug in on our positions such that we create divisions and there's tension. And I'm not saying don't hold your convictions. Don't have your beliefs about this program or this way, economic structure. I'm not saying don't have that. But I'm saying that's not the ultimate thing because economic structures are going to be gone in heaven. You know what we're going to have? Each other. And hopefully, hopefully, all the other people that we loved in Jesus' name who saw our community as a community of love and charity and healthy disagreement who said, I want to be part of that. I want to be a part of people who, when I don't know what I'm doing, cheer me on. They don't expect me to have all the right answers. They're not so concerned about having the right viewpoints and the right knowledge because they have Jesus. And that is what has shaped and formed them. And I want that too. Wouldn't that be fantastic? So here's a question for you. Is there anyone with whom you can reconcile? Is there anyone who you can say, I said something and I need to ask for your forgiveness? Or I want you to know how, value, how valuable I think you are in the body of Christ. I want you to know that I'm thankful for you and I'm grateful for you. I know we've had our disagreements in the past. We've not always seen eye to eye on politics or the budget or the music or anything. But you're important to me because you're important to Jesus. A community of reconciliation, of grace, of hope, of love, that is the kind of place that we want to be. That's what it means to mature. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.